In this episode, superhuman learner, helping murderers become peacekeepers, Doug Noll and I came up with a few sketches. I like this idea of learning how to learn, right? Something really kind of arbitrary and small. Someone comes to you and says, hey, I want to learn how to do this very small thing. And I want, it would be in a huge elaborate, like, thousands of hours like really detailed so, plan let me just say that when we train our inmate trainers we have a train uh-huh. the trainer day and we have them teach people how to do stuff mundane stuff like how to comb your hair the trial lawyer the lengths that you'll go through the evidence was swallowed by the dog and you're like i'm out <laughs> oh the uh, mediation and peacemaking but i was thinking like what if you got hired by say the empire from star wars or something like that to come in and teach mediation to kylo ren or darth vader <laughs> or something along those lines it could be any any like scary uh how do you mediate evil that was a chapter in my third book which one did we pick well you probably know if you looked at the show notes and saw the title but otherwise you'll find out on this week's episode of it's a sketch comedy podcast show. Welcome to Sketch Comedy Podcast Show, the one-of-a-kind show where I, Stuart Rice, invite interesting people to have intriguing conversations and then improvise a comedy sketch based on what we talked about. I apologize for such inconsistency in releasing episodes, but man, I moved, had some personal stuff happen. Eh, you guys don't pay me, so just enjoy the show. You know, sometimes it's important to understand your limits, like setting up a budget or knowing how much you can drink at a party before you end up naked and asking people for pony rides. Sorry, Grandma, but man, your birthday was great. This episode's guest, Doug Knoll, doesn't look at limits the same way. He has figured out how to break all of the limits, physically, mentally, and has perfected learning in what seems to be a superhuman way. Doug was a trial lawyer in California who was tenacious and was sought after all throughout the state. Hating the commute, Doug decided to learn how to fly just to get out of traffic jams. Doug has been part of bands and has recently taken up concert jazz. That's right, took up jazz for fun. Most recently, he has been a best-selling author and has created a program to help murderers in prison to become experts in diffusing violent situations. If that last sentence doesn't boggle your mind, I don't know what will. We talk about learning and how to do it properly, some of his amazing trial lawyer stories, the time he almost died flying a plane, and then we talk a great deal about his de-escalation techniques and his work with inmates, which is absolutely amazing. You can learn more about Doug and his programs at DougKnoll.com. And now, my conversation with Doug Knoll, superhuman learner helping murderers become peacekeepers. Doug, thank you so much for joining me for the very first time today. You're welcome, Stuart. I've heard about your show and I'm really looking forward to the craziness. (laughs) <laughs> it should be pretty crazy. Already has been, actually. <laughs> Doug, let me ask you a question. You might even actually know the answer to already. 
<laughs> what makes you interesting? Well, it's a bit of a story. Uh, so I was born with a lot of problems. I was born almost blind, partially deaf, crippled with two club feet, um, really bad teeth. <laughs> uh, and I couldn't walk until I was three or four years old. I had multiple surgeries on my legs. And, uh, and it, but I was, I did get in the right line for brains. I was a pretty smart guy. So I ended up going to an Ivy League school and then went to law school and was a trial lawyer for 22 years. But along the way, I picked up a whole bunch of interesting skills. I've lived probably more lifetimes in my life than I could, I possibly can deserve because I ended up being a level three certified ski instructor, whitewater rafter and class four kayaker, rock climber, mountaineer. Um, I've got a pilot's license, instrument rated, single engine, multi-engine, helicopter, tailwheel. <laughs> it's got, it got a, you know, 2000 hours of flying behind me. I, um, became a secondary black belt Tai Chi master, taught myself Irish fiddle in law school. And 10 years ago, took up jazz and blues violin. And now I play jazz and blues violin and having a blast with that. So like I said, many, 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 many lifetimes. And I've I've had a lot of really interesting careers, 22 years as a trial lawyer, then became a peacemaker and a mediator. Then I went into maximum security prisons. I've been doing that for the last 10 years, training murderers to be peacemakers. Oh, creating, we're definitely going to talk about that. That is, cre- that creating is online courses for fascinating. People. Yeah. Creating online courses for people to become emotionally intelligent and teaching them how to be leaders and teaching negotiation. I've written four books. The last one was a bestseller. Uh, so what makes me interesting is that I've had a lot of different lifetime experiences and it's been it's been a ride. It still is. I'm married to the most incredible woman in the world. So living on 10 acres south of Yosemite. Uh, and so the pandemic, I know it's hurt a lot of people, but it, for us, it's been a blessing because I don't have to leave this property. And Oh, yeah, no incredible. kidding. <laughs> and right now, I, if I could look out my window, wildflowers are blasting off everywhere. It's incredible. That's amazing. So that's what that's makes a, it an interesting. That's, yeah, that is, uh, that is multiple breaths worth of interesting, <laughs> right. right? Like you had to <laughs> inhale numerous times. Uh, for me, I'm like, eh. But for when anybody asks me that question, no one's ever asked me that question. Um, so I actually, uh, so truth be told, we tried this once before. I forgot to hit the record button. So I'm going to go <laughs> ahead and just ask the question that I just asked again is, was there a little bit of overcompensation since you you were born with all of these not yeah. ideal situations? Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, in the beginning, I was definitely overcompensating, but then I learned something really interesting about myself, which is that I love to learn. And so uh, I started taking up stuff that just interested me. So, for example, why did I learn how to fly? Well, uh, living in Central California, I had to do court appearances all up and down the state, and I didn't like driving the four hours down to L.A. or the three and a half hours up to San Francisco. It was why not learn how to fly and do it in, in less than an hour or an hour rather than spend time driving? So I was looking for efficiency and I was also looking for cool stuff to do because it got fun. And I mean, fly fishing and rock climbing and kayaking and rafting, I still raft, I don't kayak anymore, but uh, just really fun stuff to do. And that's what got me going. And so I learned how to learn. I know exactly what it takes for me to become a master at anything. 
And I'm careful about what I choose. So, example, I don't play golf. I know what it would take for me to become a scratch golfer. I don't want to put that time into it, <laughs> right? But I, right. but I could become a scratch golfer if I wanted to. It's just I don't have a desire to do it. And I don't go in, I don't take up things that I'm not very good at. I mean, I don't take up things that I don't want to master. Golfing is very difficult. It takes a lot, thousands and thousands of hours of practice to get good at it. I just don't want to put the time in on that. But I will put thousands of hours into my violin playing, jazz and blues violin, because I really love doing that. That's cool. Have you, uh, do you perform in front of people with the? With my jazz and blues, just friends and family. When I was playing mm-hmm. Irish and old timey, yeah, I had a band called Roz and the Bow and we played all over California and chased girls and when I was younger and much younger. I'm a little older today. <laughs> <laughs> it was a blast. When I was 55. I was chasing. It was a blast. You know, I mean, we had a, we just had a blast with that playing really fun music. And yeah, we played we played in bars and hotels all up and down the gold country of California and ski resorts and places like that and just had a hell of a good time. <laughs> That's fantastic. So you learned how to learn. And what does that what did that mean for you? Like you being you saying like I could become a scratch golfer golfer. I just don't want to put the time into it. Just angered right. like probably 12 percent of this audience. <laughs> how would you how would you go about it? Like how how does that start for you. Okay, so the first thing I'm going to do, the, it, let's just take golf, for example, because I have swung a golf club before uh, and taken a few lessons. So golf is golf is a it's a mental game. And it's also uh, takes a high degree of eye to hand coordination and micro muscle movement coordination, learning exactly how to work everything. And you got all these different levers that have got all, all got to be coordinated together. And that's what makes golf so, so tough. But I do know from my martial arts training that the power of golf comes from your hips, not from your arms or your shoulders. So what I'm going to do is find a a coach who is willing to work with me and is extremely knowledgeable about the kinesiology of a golf swing, of all the different, you know, the number of different golf strokes and swings, right? So you got to master them all. So I'm going to find myself a coach who's also a kinesiologist, who really understands muscle memory, muscle movement, and is also... a able to teach the how, not the what. And then I'm going to work with that coach uh, two or three times a week for three or four years. And, yeah. and, the days, and the days that I'm not working with the coach, I'm going to have a, I've got 10 acres. I could have my own golf course, but <laughs> I'd probably put up a net, <laughs> put up a net and a, a small putting green. And I would practice two to three hours a day, every day. When, even on the days that I have a lesson and it would, it will take me three to 5,000 hours depending on what it is, but I will be a scratch golfer at the end of that, probably four years, four to five years, at least. You know, hours. Yeah. That seems realistic and it doesn't sound like you're just taking a magic pill. No. So I think that that's a, that's a pretty strong lesson is that no. anytime you want to get really good at something, you have to put, you have to dump a ton of time into it. That's right. And it's um, got to be quality time. For example, uh, just, this is the other thing I've learned. So in violin, violin pedagogy is really stupid. So people who are trained in classical violin, they learned all the wrong way and they can't improvise. They can't make up their own music if they're classically trained. In fact, they're afraid of improvisation. What I've learned is that I've got to have the same technical skills as a good classical violinist, but I only practice one thing for five minutes and then I move on to something else. It's just five mm-hmm. minutes every day, just doing one little thing. And over a year, 
I become a master at that little thing. So right now, for example, I'm working on bowing, uh, a bowing technique. So you can't even hear the change of the bow. Right. At classical players, they have this big click when they do the change of the bow. I want my bow, my bowing to be absolutely seamless. So I go up smooth, so I come back down. You can't even hear the change. So I spend I spend five to 10 minutes every day working, learning, isolating what that is. And it turns out it's a very like golf. It's a very complex, coordinated physical motion between the shoulder, the arm, the forearm, the wrist and the fingers. Hmm. And the click, the, the, the change comes from just a slight contraction of the hand as fast as you can make it without making any sound. I'm, I'm getting there. Yeah. Um, so, so that, you know, so like with in anything, I don't practice anything for any one particular skill for more than five minutes because your brain can't handle it. Your brain gets tired. So let the brain rest, go on to something else, come back to it. That's actually incredibly good advice and not the right same advice that I've given to other people. So I will change my advice because you're much <laughs> better at learning than I am. Well, now, I, mean, I had to learn how to learn because I had so many problems. Yeah. You know, when I, I grew up in the 50s and 60s and I was left handed, too. I forgot to mention that. What? <laughs> so so I had to I had to learn from right handers. I had to learn from coaches and people who were not patient with me because I was uncoordinated. I couldn't run. I couldn't skip. I couldn't do jack diddly with my body. And I did. I never met a, a coach or a teacher who could really help me. Most of them. Most of them got irritated and frustrated because I wasn't a natural athlete. So I, I said, I have to learn how to do this myself. And that's what turned me into a teacher is I said, all right, I have to learn this stuff well enough that I can teach it. And I am never going to subject somebody that I'm teaching anything like skiing or whitewater or anything. I'm never going to subject them to the insult and the pain and the disrespect and the lack of patience that I got from every single teacher and coach I had from kindergarten all the way through high school. Not going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, my brother-in-law is left, naturally left-handed and had to transition for all sports over to right-handed because mm -hmm. no coach would ever, um, and watching him play golf, you, you almost feel like he needs special parking. Um, <laughs> when, when was the time you, you went, you know what? <laughs> uh, I want to go experience LA law. Like you became a trial lawyer. Yeah. Like that's a, that's a, that's not a small job. Like that's a big job. That's it's not a, a and, and yeah. it's many, many hours of tedium and boredom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you did that for 22 years. You, 22 you were a years. trial lawyer. Was it like L.A. law? I just imagine no, everything's like L.A. Like law. It. No. Like oh. So I'll just tell you one story out of my law. One of my bigger cases. I won. I only lost. If, I did over 200 trials over 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 22 years. Uh, so I was a trial dog, not a litigator. Big difference. Um and, and it, it wasn't infrequent that I would come up against big L.A. and San Francisco firms and, with senior partners who had never been in the courtroom before. And, you know, I was trying. I, I joined the firm. I, I clerked for a year for a judge. And then I joined the, my firm in 78. I tried my first jury trial. I joined the firm in September of 78. And I tried my first jury trial in November of 78. That's unheard of. Right. But that's how you become. That's how you become a trial lawyer. You should try cases. Right. There's right. no. Yeah real school to go to. You just got to learn how to do it. So it, I want to tell this one story. So I, I, my one of my partners gave me a case where he was representing another lawyer in our community uh, in an insurance case. And without going into a lot of detail, um, 
I knew that I, I, this case was a loser. It wasn't going to work unless I could find something that would really work. So uh, in, this is in central California in the middle of the summer in August. It's typically 100 to 110 degrees. I had to go through a storage unit, uh, you know, 20, 20 feet tall, 30 feet back, 20 feet wide, full of file boxes of files from a defunct insurance company. So I stripped down of my shorts, put a bandana around my head, and I went through that. I went through every single piece of paper in that storage shed. And I found the smoking gun. And I won $10 million. Really? I won $10 million for my client in fraud. Wow. Parents fraud. So that's what trial lawyering is all about. It's I, I could have assigned it out to a young lawyer, to an associate, but I knew the associate wouldn't do it. I'll tell you another, uh, just another story of yeah, what an asshole do. I could be. So I, I, I was co- I was working with one of my partners on a large construction case against um, a supplier. And it, we were, one of the things we were, there were problems with delays and stuff. with, And so it ended up costing our client, the general contractor, a lot of money with the state of California. And so we were suing the supplier because the supplier didn't deliver on time and the stuff they delivered was crap. So one day uh, we had, we had a whole room full of boxes, nothing like the storage shed, but still it was a kind of a war room. And I, we had a young associate working on the case and I said, okay, I need this invoice and it's going to save this on it. Now there were probably three, 300 boxes in there, bankers boxes full of documents. Again, I'd gone through every single piece of paper because I needed to know what was in there. And he came back to me and said, well, it's not there. And I said, well, you looked all through all through all the boxes. Well, yeah. So he came with me. We walked down the hall into the room and I went to the middle of these boxes. I pulled out the right box. I flipped through the file and I pulled out the paper and said, what the fuck is this? (laughs) You're fired. Yeah, no kidding. How, how do you even go through if you're going through boxes and boxes of papers like what are you looking for like how do you even you don't sometimes you don't out? even sometimes you don't even know and you all you know is that this is this is the this is the data and and the data doesn't mean anything to you until you've gone through it over and over and over again and the reason that I was so good as a trial lawyer is that I was able to deal with the boredom and the tedium of looking at tens of thousands of documents read every single one of them Another, I'll give you another example. I had a yeah. case where I was representing a general contractor. He's being he was uh, sued. Uh, he was being sued by a painting subcontractor, and the painting subcontractor screwed up the job. He couldn't he couldn't get the job done in time. So my guy had to bring in another contractor, subcontractor. So I had asked for all the time records of all the painters that were working on the job, and the opposing lawyer, who's a nice guy, but he couldn't get them from his client until the Friday before trial. We were going into trial on Monday. I got those time cards, probably a stack of 500, 600 time cards. And on Friday morning, I just, I went through the time cards and I just, I just started looking at them. And I went through the time cards five times until I saw the pattern. And I said, they're screwed. And the next morning or on Monday morning, we get, we impanel a jury and Burnside puts up his, his subcontractor painting client goes to the direct examination. I, I grab the cards, I put up a whiteboard, and I demonstrate to this guy that he had more than enough people to man the job. He was just an incompetent scheduler. 
and I showed it from his own time cards. And the only way, way I did that was to go through those time cards over and over and over again. And, that, and then we took a break and Burnside realized he was screwed. <laughs> so he talked to his client and, and, and they dismissed the case with prejudice. And, and we, huh. and everybody absorbed their own costs. So I walked back to, the, I'm back at the firm before lunch. And one of my senior partners looks at me, you're supposed to be in trial right now. And I said, yeah, it's over with. He said, what happened? I cross-examined the plaintiff and they dismissed. <laughs> he said, what? <laughs> that's amazing. That, I feel that's what, that's... see, LA law, they don't show you that because. No, they don't show you. You know, the, the, it's, it's hours and hours and hours and hours of tedium. Boring, boring, boring stuff. Going in commercial and business litigation, anyways, where you have to go through the documents and know them better than anybody else, and you will find the patterns and you'll find the smoking guns if you're willing to take the time. And I was, and that's why I won so much. Um, and other lawyers just weren't willing to do that kind of hard work. No, I, Again, what kept, I learned how to do that because you, I was going to say I was going to say because of all the difficulties I had growing up. I learned how to be patient. I learned how to how to deal with tedium and boredom, and I learned how to deal with pain. And boredom is painful. <laughs> I learned how to deal with it. And so as hard as that was, it held me in good stead during the years that I was trying cases. That's amazing. All right. I'm going to try and uh, leapfrog right into. I, so the thing that really caught my eye with, with you, Doug, was the uh, Prison of Peace Project. Right. Now, I, 22 years as a trial lawyer, not a criminal trial lawyer. Right. So. Never tried, never did criminal. But you somehow got into maximum security prisons and helped murderers become peacemakers and mediators. That's Explain right. Explain that to us. Okay. So I left the practice law in 2000. I, I decided that it was not my calling, even though I was very good at it. Right. And I, I had gone back to school and gotten my master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies to become a peacemaker and a mediator. Cause I was really interested. I saw litigation as being a really inefficient way of solving human conflict. And everybody was going to litigation because they didn't have any other skills to resolve conflict and people were afraid to talk to each other and lots of problems. So I go back to school, I get my master's degree, leave the firm, set up a mediation peacemaking practice, which is, does very well. Recession hits in 2008, wipes me, doesn't, I don't file bankruptcy, but my practice basically blows away. And, and so I started writing, started doing online stuff, learned more about online marketing than I'd known before. And then in 2010, um, with my colleague, Laurel Carper, we get the opportunity to teach 15 women who are all lifers and long-termers, many of them murderers, um, in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world, how to become mediators and peacemakers to stop the violence in the prison. <clears throat> and that's where it started. And part of the curriculum that we used was a de-escalation technique that I developed in my mediation practice uh, back in 2004. And by the time the, the, the original training was 12 weeks long, by the time we got into about week eight, we had 300 women on a waiting list wanting to learn. And so we stayed in that prison for three years until we had trained, we trained inmates to be trainers. That's why we work with lifers and long-termers. They can now become- Because they're there. Right. right. Well, that's how it started. And today, well, of course, the pandemic shut everything down. But but before the pandemic, we were in 15 California prisons, a prison in Connecticut, 14 prisons in Greece and startups in Nairobi and Italy and a bunch of other states wanting to get this program started. And so, of course, the pandemic shut things down. We did distance learning. But now what's really cool is we're putting the whole curriculum on video and we'll be able to send DVDs and train facilitators 
outside people, not, not inmates, facilitators, how to use the videos via Zoom. And then they can go in and we can put prison of peace into any prison in the world that speaks English that wants to do this. That's amazing. amazing. So is it, so is it, it, it cutting, it's cutting it's down, down on the, the um, violence in prison? Absolutely. We've gotten letters from wardens, from yard captains, from, I mean, it, the stuff we, and of course the inmates themselves. We see that if we, if on a yard with a thousand inmates, if we can train up about 15 or 20 of them to fully be mediators, the violence drops precipitously within a year. And, and what are the that happen things, over and over again. Yeah, what are the things that you're teaching them? Like, are you teaching them like uh, uh, Vulcan death grips? Like, what are you <laughs> no, no, well, actually, our premise is when we go in is that we are working with uh, a population of people who have varying degrees of mental acuity, varying degrees of mental health, um, have only known violence as a way of resolving conflict. So they have no real peacemaking skills whatsoever. And so we start, and before we can even get them to treat, teach them the mediation process, we've got to build up some basic skills. So in the first workshop, we teach them how to listen, reflectively listen, not active listening, but reflective listening, very different. Mm -hmm. And we also teach them how to de-escalate anger. And we teach them how to be leaders in their what we call listening peace circles, listening circles. Then in the second workshop, they get through all of that, a lot of homework. Uh, they get through that. Then we teach them how to make durable agreements. How do you reach an agreement with somebody and make sure that that person that you're making the agreement will, wants, will perform the agreement? And then what do you do if they don't? Because that's a big cause of conflict in prison. I loan you five pounds of coffee and you're supposed to pay me back next week. and You don't pay me back. And now the knives come out. Uh, how to how to help people solve a problem without giving advice how to manage strong emotions, your own and other people, and then how to morally re-engage people, uh, people who are morally disengaged, which is kind of an important thing to be able to do in prison. Yeah. And then once they've gotten through all of that and they've gotten all those skills mastered, then we take them through the mediation training and we teach them how to be a mediator. And then they, and then, then they go out and they've got to practice under our supervision mediation. And when they've demonstrated to us that they can successfully walk into a conflict that's on the edge of violence and solve help people solve it peacefully, then we certify them as mediators. Now, see, that sounds like a life skill we should be teaching everybody, that's not correct. just inmates, right? That's correct. In fact, that's what got me started on my book, Deescalate, and now teaching people how to develop emotional competency, because I realized that, well, first of all, I must have, I'm probably taught thousands of inmates, but, you know, they all come to me and Say, if I would learned these skills 20 years ago, I wouldn't be in prison right now. Yeah. And then I started looking at families and I, I read a statistic that 96% of all families are emotionally dysfunctional. <laughs> and, and the ACEs that seems study, low. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the ACEs study that shows that um, adverse childhood experiences, including normal emotional abuse that parents do to children, even though they love their children, they still abuse them, mm -hmm. um, leads to really bad medical outcomes later in life heart disease, mm. cancer, um, diabetes, of course, not, yeah, of course, we've got drug addiction and crime and high divorce rates and all this stuff. It all comes from uh, unintentional emotional abuse that occurs in childhood. So I've just kind of made it my calling to get this word out about don't, don't invalidate, validate, learn how to listen other people into existence through these skills. 
That's a that's an interesting statement. Listen people into existence. Mm-hmm. Can can you dive into that a little bit? I like the statement and I like the sentiment right. behind it. So what it means is that in is that we learn how to listen to and reflect back people's emotional experiences. So I would say something like, so supposing you were pissed off at something, Stuart, I would say something, oh, Stuart, man, you are really pissed off. You're really angry. You feel deeply disrespected. You don't feel appreciated. You don't feel listened to. You feel sad and you're really anxious. You feel abandoned and unloved. And it's really making you angry and pissed off. I just listened to you into existence because what I did was instead of trying to fix the problem, instead of trying to argue whether you have a right to feel mad or not, I, all I did is reflect your emotional existence. And when you do that, the person that you, the speaker is so grateful, it's probably the first time in their lives, one, when they felt emotionally safe and two, they felt like somebody really understands and gets where they're coming from. And this is the skill we teach our inmates. The first skill we teach them is this skill. And it's the skill that I've taught to tens of thousands of people around the world that are not in prison. It's the basis of my fourth book. And it is the mo- and it is the foundational skill of life. Foundation. And that's a, that, that book is the dis- de-escalate, de-escalate how to calm an angry person in 90 seconds yeah, or cool. less. Right. Now, here's what, here's what is really cool about this. I, d- I discovered this by happenstance in 2004 in a difficult mediation. But in 2007, Matthew Lieberman, who's a neuroscientist at UCLA, uh, um, published a brain scanning study where he, sh- where he showed why this works in the brain. We're hardwired for this. And so there's really strong neuroscience. Now there are nine or 10 studies out there that have replicated this and just show that this is there's a neural process that's involved in this that makes it work every single time without failure and and once you master this skill everything in your life changes unbelievable unbelievable yeah doug how long have you been married uh this is my second marriage we've been married okay. we've been married uh 13 years i Pro- did probably going pretty good because if you've got these skills awesome. managed <laughs> my our marriage is awesome I, I yeah. never believed that marriage could be the way that it is. This, the way our marriage is, is the way that everybody talks about fairy book marriages. Yeah, that's that, my amazing. first marriage was not that way, because I was emotionally shut down. My wife was emo- my first wife was emotionally shut down. We were both highly skilled professional people, but we were emotional infants. Yeah, and we never developed our own. Didn't even know that we were that way, and it just led to conflict after conflict. And, um, but once I started mastering these skills. You know, I started, I discovered these skills in 2004, started really refining them, teaching them. You know, I got remarried in 2008 and um, the prison project started in 2010, which is where we really refined the skills, acid tested and maximum security presence. And ever since then, it's just been amazing. I mean, I've gone all over the world teaching this uh, to people and of all different walks of life, from the, I've gone to the Congressional Budget Office and trained senior analysts how to de-escalate members of Congress and their staff. So imagine that. Maximum security prisons to the CBO. (laughs) Which one's worse? (laughs) Which one's harder to teach? None of them are hard. I mean, the the CBO analysts are all introverts. They're extremely bright people. Many of them have double PhDs. And so so they they come with a rational mindset. And I, I blew them out of the water. I said, you know, you know, 
human beings are 98% emotional and only 2% rational. And you guys, you guys are all based on rationality, which is great, but you got to understand that you're only addressing 2% of what makes us human. And when you're dealing with congressional members of Congress and their staffs, they're emotional. There's not a lick, there's not a lick of rationality in them. And they always no. saying, yeah, they're all irrational. I said, no, they're not. It's not that they're irrational. It's that they're emotional. And you guys have never learned how to look at their, look at them and look at emotions as data and learn how to work with that data in a, in a, in a very sophisticated scientifically based manner. And once I said that they got it. And then I just, we went through the process of how you learn. Oh, that's beautiful. To master these skills. That is amazing. Uh, real quick, any interesting flying stories? Do you have like one of those like oh, I've scared myself. Crash? Never <laughs> almost crashed, but sure have scared myself. <laughs> You've flown a helicopter? Yeah, I've got a helicopter rating. Wow. That I've helicopters seem like dark magic to me. Well I've never been in one. I've I've seen yeah, them, but they I love me. flying helicopters. I haven't flown flown one in twenty five years. So if I were to go out if I wanted to fly a helicopter, I'd have to I'd go out and get flight instruction, at least 10 hours of recurrent training to make sure that I'm safe. Helicopters are interesting. Um, airplanes are, are aerodynamically very stable. So once you get the airplane moving, it's off the ground, you get up to altitude, autopilot's on, it'll fly itself until it runs out of fuel. You don't even have to touch the controls. Not so with a helicopter. Helicopters are aerodynamically unstable. So you have to fly it all the time. And there are five different things. You've got five different controls on a helicopter. You've got an, your two anti-torque pedals, throttle uh the collective and and so you've got all and, and you've got all these things you've got to manage at the same time and the first thing you learn to do in a helicopter is how to hover that took me about eight or nine hours to like get, have a good hover then once i learned how to hover it basically it's an airplane and, and well then emergency procedures which in a helicopter are obviously different than an airplane but they're cool uh, and the yeah, thing they about are the cool, but oof. The, the, the thing about a helicopter is, you know, you you can you don't need uh, you know a three or four thousand foot runway to put a helicopter down. You need just need a little patch of something, and you learn how to power your power off at a thousand or thirteen hundred feet, and you learn how to that. You look down at, in the plexiglass bubble. You look down where your feet are. That's where you're landing. <laughs> right. So you. So you can maneuver as you're going down. And you're looking for that sure. flat spot and you a flare. I mean, you learn and you practice that auto rotation till you're sick of it, um, because it's got to be second nature. Because that's that's how you get down if you have a power failure. <laughs> so, wow. yeah, awesome. I had I've had some crazy crazy experiences flying. Mostly safe, I but I, I never, good. I never really got myself. I got myself in some situations where I thought oh, this is not good, and I, I bailed out. I got climbed out and got away and said that was stupid. Um, hmm. But uh, I've never been in a situation where I really felt like, I mean, it was hairy, but I didn't think oh, I'm going to die. That's good. Just, That's good. So I mean, I think like one time I was. At, for a long time, my wife was in Santa Barbara. I had her practice in Santa Barbara. So I was commuting back and forth between Fresno and I, I don't live in Fresno. I live 40 miles north, but in the mountains. But um, my plane's down in, in the at the Fresno airport. And so I'd commute back and forth. There's about a 45-minute flight down to Santa Barbara. And one time I had I came, I was coming back, but there was a front coming through. And I kind of checked where the edge of the front was. It was going to be a lot of rain. And I said, I think I can beat it. 
I probably shouldn't have gone because I got up and there are big, tall mountains. In California, there's a lot of mountains and there's a range of mountains along the coastal range, which are quite tall. You've got to be up at around 11,000 feet to clear those mountains and to, and to be safe. I got up and all of a sudden I'm in the clouds, the rain starting and I lose all my electronics. And uh, yeah, some water got inside and just sort of everything is sort of shorted out. So you, there are things, you, there are procedures that you do to to let air traffic control know that you got a problem. And I could hear an air, air traffic controller told me, squawk this, if you you know if you can hear me do this. So I did that. So they, they knew that I could hear them. I couldn't talk to them. I heard these jet pilots and oh, that poor slob, he's down in the clouds with no radios <laughs> and no nav. So I just navigate, I knew I could navigate and I did beat the front. Eventually it broke out. And after about five minutes, 10 minutes of in clean, dry air, everything dried out and the transmitter came back on. I said, oh, I'm back with you. <laughs> I'd like to descend, please, and get out of this. <laughs> and they, they're quite happy to hear from me and, and said, yeah. And so I got in and landed. And just as I got the airplane back in the hangar, this huge front came over and just torrential rains. And that's, I just caught the edge of it. So it was kind of, it was spooky, but you're trained for it. So, I mean, it was uncomfortable. It was kind of hairy, but as long as the airplane is straight and level and flying and I'm high enough, you're, up, I'm not going to hit anything. I'm okay. And I know I'm going to get out of it eventually. Right, man. I, if I run out of phone, phone battery, battery when I'm in the, I'm bathroom, in the bathroom, bathroom, I panic. I don't even know what I would do in that situation. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, all right. Well, Doug, I could talk to you all day, but I know you got things to do. And so it is time to record a sketch. When people talk about how they got stories, man, Doug got stories. That was pretty amazing. I mean, I've never come close to a near-death experience like that. And the fact that he probably didn't just shook it off and got back up on there, just amazing. Hey, Doug, do me a favor. Make sure you let everybody know how they can learn more about your programs and about you. First of all, I'm a, a one-man guy. I have no entourage. I have no big people behind me. Yep. Just go to DougNoll.com. That gets you to the homepage. And then from there, you can just explore. I've got many, many articles on everything I've talked about today, at least around peacemaking and de-escalation, emotional competency. There you go. Um, if you need to email me, uh, it's really difficult. Doug at DougNoll.com. And I respond to all my own emails. So feel free to reach out. I've got a ton of YouTubes. And you can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. I'm not big on social media. I, I've got more of a LinkedIn presence than anywhere else. But um, I post, but I don't hang out there. I, again, social media is like television. I don't have time for it. Well, Doug, I hope you have enough time to listen to your brilliant sketch. You're good enough. You're smart enough. And doggone it, the force is with you. Why is Snoke making me waste my time with this anger management crap? Ugh, here's the door. Yes, are you Dr. Noel? I am. And you are? My name is Kylo Ren, and I am here because my stupid staff at the Empire just doesn't seem to understand. They need to get things done, and they don't do it fast enough, and I get so angry I just can't help it but slice them in half. So you're really frustrated. You feel really disrespected. And nobody listens to you. Nobody appreciates you. You've got a lot of anxiety around that because you can't get stuff done. And you're a little sad because you want the respect that you're not getting. 
and it, the whole thing just really pisses you off. It does really piss me off. And I've got these voices in my head that keep talking to me. I've got Snoke telling me what a fool I am if I don't get things done. And then I've got Ray, who's, I keep seeing her, and she's telling me how awful and evil I am. You've got all these voices in you that are telling you, shaming you. So you feel a lot of shame, a lot of humiliation, and you are being constantly reminded you aren't good enough. And that really frustrates you and pisses you off because you know deep inside you're a good person and you have the capacity for love and you have the capacity to be compassionate. But you've got all this other shame and humiliation and embarrassment going on that is moving you in a direction away from where you want to be. And my biggest shame is that I'll never be Darth Vader, even though he was my grandfather. Han Solo and Princess Leia are my parents, and I can't seem to escape that, and I just want to murder them. So you are really enraged over the fact that you cannot be like your grandfather, and you're feeling a lot of shame and humiliation because you're not living up to the people truly brought you into the world and love you. And it just makes you so infuriated that you just want to lash out. With my lightsaber, and I like to cut people in half. So you really enjoy power, and you really enjoy demonstrating power because that soothes you. It soothes your anxiety. The choices you've made so far are to use that kind of violence to soothe your anxiety and to quiet the shame and humiliation you're feeling. So I, I feel less like using my lightsaber to chop off people's heads. So you're feeling like it's not such an impulse now. And maybe you're feeling some hope rather than despair that there's a better way or at least a different way. Did, did you just use the word hope? I did. I have to hand it to Snoke. I do feel better. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of Sketch Comedy Podcast Show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed making it. Head over to sketchcomedypodcastshow.com if you'd like to hear more episodes, find out more about the show, or if you are an interesting person, even apply to be on the show. Sketch Comedy Podcast Show is protected under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives 4.0 International License.